Welcome to the SMA News Today podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Schaefer. I have SMA Type 2, and I am a columnist and forums director for smanewstoday.com. Welcome to the SMA News Today podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Schaefer. And joining me today are two of my colleagues from SMA News Today, Michael Morale and Deanne Runge. It's been a minute since we've all done one of these. So Michael, Deanne, really great to have you back. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, Absolutely. it's good to be here. Thanks. Absolutely. Happy. I know it's so it's I, I know I don't know when the rule is for when you can stop saying Happy New Year, but I'll go ahead and say it since the first time all three of us are back recording. So Happy New Year. This will be our first like more round table of 2022. So I'm really excited. And today we have a really special topic for all of you listeners. Um, this is something that we talk about a lot in the SMA community and we have done podcast episodes on this before. But it is the subject of caregiving and specifically hiring and managing caregivers. And I know that it's always a prominent discussion in SMA forums and Facebook groups. So we, um, me, Michael, and Deanne all have very different living and caregiving situations. So we just kind of wanted to do a panel on that and um, share our experiences. Hopefully, you'll be able to get some tips and just encouragement out of this, uh, as I'm sure many in the SMA community are always uh, struggling to find caregivers and don't know where to start. So we hope to give you some good information and perspectives on this subject. Um, we'll also be talking about a couple of columns and there's not too much news to discuss right now, but you know we'll catch up. So um, before we get started, if everyone could please listen to a brief word from our sponsor. This podcast was brought to you by Genentech, the makers of an FDA-approved treatment for SMA. To learn about our study results across different types of people with SMA, visit approvedforsma.com. That's approvedforsma.com. Okay, well, to start off, um, I did want to touch on a couple columns um, real quick. And so uh, the first one is by Sherry Toe. Um, this was written or it was published um, at the beginning of January uh, and it hits on kind of her New Year's resolutions and um, she titled it Don't Wait Till for the Miracle to Happen. Um, and uh, basically she's talking about how New Year's resolutions have changed for her over the years and how, you know, health and circumstances can get in the way of what you initially set out to do. And so I'll read just this um, excerpt from the column which is about um, midway through. Uh, and she says, all of these good things ahead don't mean I'm not wary or worried. My health could disrupt my plans. Disease-modifying disease therapies for SMA are still unavailable here in Singapore. One of my caregivers is leaving and my family is looking for someone to fill her shoes. The COVID-19 pandemic remains a threat. Many other bad things could happen. To ease my mind, I've been repeating a line from Netflix's One Day at a Time, don't quit before the miracle happens. Uh, so this one I just really enjoyed. I liked um, how it touched on the notion of New Year's resolutions, but how particularly for those of us in the SMA community that, uh, like Cherry says, they can change depending on circumstances and health. And uh, it's important to look for the positives and set goals, but also understand to not put 
too much pressure on yourself. And so I thought this was a really cool column. And she also talks about um, and includes in the column a playlist that she created for this year that actually inspired me to do one of my own. So this was really a good column. I don't know. Deanne, Michael, um, do you have any other thoughts on this or things you want to point out? Are you becoming a Swifty? I am. I, I, Taylor yeah. Swift? I am. I actually, so Sherry writes a lot about Ter- Taylor Swift in her columns. And um, I, yeah, I unabashedly told uh, Alyssa, our co-moderator on the SMA forums and columnists that I did become a Swifty around November, December when she dropped that new album and I saw her performance on SNL. So I, yeah, I'm unabashedly a fan now. And it's, uh, hey, I, I think our music is really cool. And it, and it's cool how Sherry uh, incorporates like themes from her songs into her columns. Uh, so it's, yeah, I really like yeah. that. But yeah. But yeah. Um, and then there was one quote I liked it uh, when she was touched on scraping a columnist and it refers to that um, episode of One Day at a Time. And then she she reminds herself to remember how far she's come, but yet also how far she has yet to go. And that kind of motivates her too. And that's the don't quit before miracles happen. Um, so yeah, I thought that was pretty, pretty. Absolutely. It was a really nice touch. And you could tell there was a lot of personal sentiments in this column. And it was like both realistic and also still very... Um, you know, pushing for sky's the limit kind of themes. There's a lot of really cool themes embedded into this column. And I, again, I just like how she touches on the whole concept of New Year's resolutions and what how it might differ for people in our community. Uh, so yeah, I really love this one. Um, Michael, I don't know if you had any thoughts too on this piece. But. Yeah, um, I guess I'm the lone person out on this because I don't make New Year's resolutions you know, I used to when I was younger, but I'm 56 years old and I don't think I've kept not one single New Year's resolution that I made. You know, you can make resolutions like, you know, I'm going to be a better person this year than I was last year. Well, if I said that, was I an evil monster last year? No. Um, you know, how, how much better could I be? I have no idea. But you guys may be Swifties. I'm not, I'm not into that kind of music. I was raised with country and Western. And, you know, they, they say that if you play rock and roll backwards, you can hear the devil. But if you play country and Western backwards, the dog comes back, the wife comes back and, and everything turns out great. So I, I try not to make New Year's resolutions because it's just something that I know that I'm not going to keep. You know, I'm going to be the best person that I can be. And whether or not it's better than last year, I have no idea. Sure. No, I think that's a great mentality. And really, like, it's similar to me. I used to, I I mean, I don't know if I was ever super intentional about making a bunch of resolutions, but I would try to go into the new year with a new mindset and, you know, like kind of general things I wanted to do, you know, write more or um, do this, do that. But yeah, but like, I found that too, that it helps to, instead of like, um, saying a resolution like, oh, I'm going to um, read for an hour every day or um, write for an hour a day or whatever it may be, exercise. Like instead of doing those like daily things, sometimes it works great for people. But like Michael said, I think a lot of times they, they it's easy to fall off on those and um, not commit. And so 
I think for me, it's better to set general um, things of what I wanted to either accomplish personally, professionally, whatever it may be, uh, and kind of stick with that. But yeah. Yeah, that's me too. I, I kind of go for the more general goals because like Sherry said, sometimes life gets in the way and sure. indeed <laughs> it does change course a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I de- I will link both of these columns um, in the episode description. And the other one I wanted to touch on was a really great one written by Halsey Blocker, who I had on the, I had her and her mom on the last episode of the podcast of 2021. It was a really great discussion if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to it. But, um, but Halsey wrote this piece about speaking to the next generation of people with SMA and how, you know, the face of SMA is changing. And uh, she brings up this story about meeting a kid with SMA in Disney World. Um, and it was not at an SMA conference. This was just happenstance. And so she talks about that and how, you know, with um, treatments and modifications and, you know, how many things in the world of SMA are changing um, every day, SMA is going to look very different. You know, it already is now than, you know, when me, Deanne, Michael, were all kids, but, um, but even more so in the coming years as more treatments develop and, you know, what SMA entails. And so she gives a really good perspective on her thoughts on that and how, it's still a matter of community, no matter what, you know, the disease, the disability may look like in the future, we all still have this connection. And so I'll share this one excerpt. This is also about midway through, um, or maybe a little earlier. Uh, But she says, the face of SMA is changing, and our community's culture is changing with it. I sometimes wonder how the lessened effects of SMA will shape this new generation that is growing up in an environment that's so different from the one my generation grew up in. Uh, So again, I just really like this piece a lot. And I think it speaks to uh, a lot of the mindsets of adults with SMA in particular. So I don't know, um, Michael, Deanne, if you had any other thoughts on this piece. Yeah, I did. Um, I know that it was a great piece. I I did read it. And and I think the, the thing is, People growing up in today's generation will know more about SMA because it's, it is there. You know, it, it is a clinically diagnosable disease. Back when I was growing up, nobody knew what SMA was. Uh-huh. You know, the SMA gene was isolated in the mid-90s. And that's when they found out because I remember getting a call from a hospital called Zell Lipschitz in 1990. I think it was 1998 and they had my medical records and they called me at work and uh, they, they said that by all the markers that I had and everything that my disease was showing, they thought I may have something called SMA. And that, that was a complete shock to me because I, I didn't know what SMA was. So I went in for a blood test and about a week later, they called me and they said, yes, you got SMA type three. So that's the first that I had heard of it. You know, I was first diagnosed with muscular dystrophy. Then I was diagnosed with myotonia congenita, which is similar to muscular dystrophy. And so that's what I lived with uh, until the mid 90s. And I wasn't really clinically diagnosed until I believe around 1998. So my generation didn't really know what SMA was. You know, 
uh, I went to the 2018 CureSMA conference here in Dallas. That's where I met you, Kevin. And we had, you and I had been working together for a couple of months, you know, before that. And I remember that was the very first time that I ever witnessed others that had the same disease that I did. And it was, it was an, it was an amazing experience. It was very difficult. Uh, it was very cathartic for me because I saw people that were much worse off than me. And I started feeling better about myself, which sounds bad. You know, I don't want to make it sound like I was glad to see people that were worse than me, but I felt better knowing that I didn't have the level of disease that they had. But what I witnessed was when I went through the hotel and I saw all these children tied to tracheotomies and breathing machines, I didn't see anybody not smiling. Every one of these kids were smiling and they were having a great time. And I thought to myself, how dare I feel bad or better about myself when seeing all these other kids that were going to be much worse off than me when they got my age. So it was, it was very eye-opening to me to be around other people with SMA. So my generation didn't have the luxury of knowing what we had until later in life. Today's generation, with the advancements of, you know, Spinraza, Zolgensma, FRISD, and hopefully by the end of this year, the first part of next year, they'll have uh, a muscle-targeted therapy called epidogramab by Scholarock. So there's a lot more advancements in technology, um, treatable uh, or, or, or treatments that are set up for people with SMA. Uh, I think their, their life is going to be much, much better. No, and you bring up a good point about uh, there, there's a lot of adults too, that, like you, who didn't know what SMA was and didn't have a name for their disability. And so the not just treatments, but the amount of information and community resources have expanded rapidly in the past, especially 20 years. I mean, when I, you know, I was born in the 90s, was diagnosed then. And so I would like my family and I were early involved in what was then families of SMA before it became Cure SMA. And so we had those community resources and then it changed even more with like social media and resources like that. And so, yeah, that is, you know, another uh, element. Even, uh, even on, now get... they at birth. So it, you can have the treatments from the very start. And I think part of what Halsey was saying too, is that because the landscape has changed so much, we have to um, look back at our experiences. I'm not sure you're me very good today. Um, no, you're, you're coming through to now. Look back yeah. at, okay, we have to our experiences and share our experiences because the landscape is changing so much. Um, so to keep that perspective. Exactly. And Absolutely. that's exactly what I was trying to say is that, you know, when these kids are being born now, and since a lot of states are now testing this at birth, is that they're diagnosing these infants with SMA, and they can immediately get started on a treatment. Okay, so a lot of these children, hopefully, you know, uh, we'll never know what a wheelchair is. And that's something that we can say now because there's so many treatments out there. 
you know, we've got, we've got gene modifying therapies and we've got a gene replacement therapy with Zolgensma. So uh, they're now addressing this issue at a very, very early state in the child's life. And they're not gonna have to go through what we went through as adults with regards to a lot of the atrophy, a lot of the muscle wasting, because if they get on these treatments early, it's much easier for them to adapt and to get maybe get stronger than what we went through when we first started on it. Yeah, it's it's wild to think about. I mean, I you know I've been going to conferences for years and just to see again how the landscape is changing. And um, so I really like how Halsey's touched on all of that. And but ultimately looking at how, regardless of how the face of SMA itself changes the community is what unites us. And so um, it's really cool. But yeah, I, again, I highly recommend listeners go back and read this column. Uh, again, I'll link both of these in the description, but, um, but yeah, so I just wanted to touch on those two briefly. And uh, before we get to our main event, uh, if everyone could please listen to one more brief word from our sponsor. This podcast is made possible by a sponsorship from Genentech. Are you living with SMA or are you a caregiver for someone who is? A treatment has been FDA approved based on studies of different types of people living with SMA. Genentech extends a special thanks to all the individuals, families, and healthcare providers who participated in the studies that led to making this treatment option a reality. To learn more about this treatment, visit approvedforsma.com. Okay. Well, Michael, Deanne, thanks again for being here today. And now we move on to the main portion of this episode, which is, again, a discussion about hiring and managing caregivers. And so all three of us, again, have different experiences in this regard, different living situations. So uh, for those who don't know, in my case, I live with my parents and I have caregivers come to my house. Uh, And if you follow my column, you know that I had the same caregiver for seven years and he actually left um, back in October to start a new career. So obviously a big transition for me. He was my primary caregiver for a long time, um, along with several other people. So now I'm in the process of hiring new people while my parents are my primary caregivers in the meantime. And I, you know, I fired um, one so far and I'm, you know, slowly working my way up to building a team there. But uh, Michael, Deanne, you both have different experiences and there. Deanne, why don't you start? Tell us a little bit about your living situation and what you do for caregivers. I do live independently. So I have, I live in a house on my own. Um, and then I have caregivers that come in to help me periodically throughout the day. Um, I have someone that stays overnight and then I have someone that comes in for a couple hours during um i go through an agency but they're very off. so i have to select um who i want to be my caregivers i do the training and do this much take care of the paperwork aspect of it um so that's what i'm doing now for caregivers great great and then, Michael, what about you? I know you also have a different living and caregiving situation. So if you want to talk about that. Sure. Um, I started looking for a caregiver. It wasn't too long after my mother passed away in 2008. Um, my father started showing 
early signs of Alzheimer's, or I'm sorry, early, early signs of Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. And so I knew that, you know, my father, after my mother passed away, my father was my primary caregiver, but it was getting more difficult for him to do the things for not only himself, but for me. So we started looking at hiring someone to live with us on, you know, a 24 by seven, 365 basis. And so we advertised and, you know, we did Craigslist, we did care.com. And I ended up finding a caregiver that stayed with us. Our first caregiver stayed with us for probably about six months. And then she started getting sick. So we've gone through, you know, numerous caregivers over the time. Currently, I hired a young lady about eight years ago, and she stayed with me and my father. Uh, I mean, she's still with me today, but uh, she was also there when my father was alive. And then to make it easier for her, her parents moved in with us. So now it's her mother and father, uh, along with uh, Jennifer. And then so that way, it's kind of a break. Jennifer doesn't have to do everything. Her father and her mother help out. And they've been with me for well over eight years now. And so far, everything is great. That's great. That's great. And Michael, prior to, you know, when you hired that first one in 2008, had you done any other, had any other paid caregivers prior to that in your life? Or was that your first experience with paid caregivers? That was my first experience. That's okay. Yeah. So, because uh, I know, and this is something I think that, um, you know, everyone in the SMA community is different in terms of like some use government programs, some pay out of pocket, some um, wait till a certain time in their lives. So that's the thing I was curious about. And Deanne, for you as well, when was the first time you started hiring paid caregivers? And was it through a government program? Was it paying out of pocket? These are the things I think people want to know. The first time I had an outside caregiver was when my mom um, had a back injury, like when I was in high school. And we contacted the county and they uh, were able to send someone out. Um, so that was kind of my first experience with an outside caregiver. And of course, it was awkward and I hated it. And uh, I, it took so much time and everything, but I'm glad that it worked out that way because when I went to college, I had to totally rely on outside caregivers. Um, I went through an agency and I it was through a county program. Um, my income is low enough where I qualify for Medicaid. So um, my PCAs are paid through Medicaid and um, I'm limited with the amount of hours I can have for care, which is somewhat restricting. Um, when I decided to move into the house, the county said uh, that you can't be alone overnight. And so I'm like, well, if I can't be alone overnight, you have to allow my son overnight and mm -hmm. through the day. So it was a little bit of a fight to get the hours that I needed, um, but it did work out based on have someone overnight and uh, then come in during the day. 
That's it. Yeah, no, it's a really good point about deciding the schedule that works for you. And also, you know, if you're working with the government program, this is something for people out there to be aware of. Like, um, the tricky thing is that it's very in the US, it's very different in each state, as far as like, what the Medicaid and SSI rules are, how many hours they allow you, etc. Um, I, I uh, that's one of the and Dan, you also brought up um, the kind of awkwardness of that first time you're hiring someone. And I will say that is a universal thing in this community and in other disability communities. Uh, it, it never really gets, I, I mean, I don't want to say, I, I would say in my experience, it does, you do get a little more comfortable in the interview process, at least, again, this is just speaking from personal. I remember the first time I started um, hiring paid caregivers was in college. Like Deanne, I was going through Medicaid. And so um, different agencies sent people for me to interview. It was the summer in between my sophomore and junior year. Um, and for me, it was just a matter of uh, my parents could still take care of me, but it was getting hard for them to do everything. And so I did, and I did want more independence and I was considering possibly moving out or at least having some care at home. And so that was kind of what motivated me to look into it. And, um, you know, we, my mom and I went through a bunch of loopholes to try to figure out who to talk to. And, uh, but that initial experience of interviewing someone is always a, a very overwhelming and it can be, um, you're just worried about everything because this is someone who is going to be doing things in a very intimate space. And, you know, if it was prior to that, whether it was your parents or family members or whoever, who was doing your primary care up until that point, it's really hard transitioning to someone else. And so I just want to put that out there for listeners that, um, that is something that is very universal in the community. And so that leaves me. And nobody does it. Nobody does it like your parents, you know, or yeah. whoever long time caregiver has been. So you always exactly. question, oh no, am I ever going to be comfortable again? But I assure you, you will. And it was a similar anxiety for me too when Randy, my longtime caregiver, left um, a few months ago. It was, a, you know, we also had that vibe too, and like he knew my needs specifically. And so, Similar to me of like, oh, am I ever good? Yeah, I, that's a great point, Dan, of like, am I ever going to be comfortable again? It, it's something that looms over your mind, but I would say um, it'll take some work to find the right people, but um, it'll be worth it. You will find people who can, uh, no caregiver is the same. I mean, you're going to have a different flow and um, fluidity with each person, but um, but yes, you can teach people how to perform the tasks you need and to um, meet your needs. So that leads to my next question. Like, Michael, we'll start with you. So especially because you were looking for a live-in caregiver at that time, can you talk about what the interview process was like, what questions you asked, and what you were looking for in that person? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, before I did my first round of interviews, uh, back when I first hired someone, I really didn't know what to ask. I mean, a lot of it was a learning process that I had to go through. But, you know, the first time that we spoke, um, I got a different phone number and I created a different email address that was not my own personal 
email address, which I thought was a good idea. And it ended up being a very good idea because, you know, you're going to get people that are going to apply for this position and they sound great at the very beginning. And then you find out that, you know, hey, these, you know, after doing a background check, you find out that some of these people had convictions on their on their record that I, you just don't want to bring them into your home. One lady tried to convince me that the attempted murder charge on her on her rap sheet was a mistake. Well, they're going to tell you what they want you to hear to try to convince you. But, you know, once I found out that she had that kind of conviction posted on her or on her her uh, uh, criminal record, uh, it made me very thankful that I did a background check. But the one thing that you got to remember when you're hiring a caregiver is that you got to you got to be very open. You got to be very honest with yourself. You know, uh, questions like, are you going to need somebody to help you go to the bathroom? Are you going to need somebody to wipe you, you know, to get you clean? These are questions that may be embarrassing to talk about, but it's going to be part of their job. You know, we all go to the bathroom. You can't you can't stop that. That's just part of life. So you're going to have to let them know exactly what you need. And you need to be honest with them. You know, uh, you don't want them getting the position. And then the first day they said, wait a minute, I've got to wipe you to get you clean. Uh, that's not part of my job. Well, yeah, it is part of your job. And that's what we discussed. And so lay everything out on the table. Try to think of every single question that they're going to come up with. Let them know exactly what you or whoever you're hiring the caregiver for. Let them know what they're going to be doing because they need to know this information up front. Because the more honest you can be at the very beginning, it's going to eliminate a lot of the problems later when you do encounter a problem. So I learned after the first one that I should have asked more questions. I should have been a little bit more honest. And that was my fault. But like I said, it's a it's it's a, a learn as you go type process. And each time that you hire a new caregiver, you update those questions with the ones that you should have asked before. So you're not going to find the right person the first time. There's no way of getting around that. As much as you think that you've laid out all the ground rules, you'll find something that you missed. It's so, a great... And, oh, God. No, 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 I'm done. Oh, no, I was going to say, it's a great point about being thorough and and communicating exactly what your needs are. And also, I, you know, I, that was what I was curious about too, Michael, with you having live-in caregivers. I think you have to do an even extra level of security uh, because these are people who are not only be coming in you know, uh, working shifts, but actually staying with you. And so you want to make sure you're extra cautious about the kind of people you're letting in and um, doing background checks, doing all that. And so I, yeah, that uh, that's absolutely the case. And Dan, for you as well, what were some of, like, what are some of the main questions you ask? And um, I also want to ask too, with this, is it important for you to find someone that you vibe with and that have kind of like a personality check, or are you just looking for someone who can adequately perform their job? I think it's really important that you find someone that um, you can get along with. 
Um, I've had interviews where it's just a stone sitting there and I get no reaction whatsoever. And I'm like, now I cannot spend hours with a person that has no personality whatsoever. Um, but like Michael said, I really go into it, explain what I need, and then seeing what their reaction is to that. Um, some people, if they've never seen caregiving before, I know it's going to be a lot more challenging to teach them. Um, so I kind of look for people who have a bit of experience, as like maybe CNA experience, or um, I like finding tech students that are going for nursing. Um, they might have a short, may, might be short term because they have bigger career goals, but at least I have someone that I know figure it out a little quicker. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's tough for me. I don't have a set list of questions. Um, I go into it. I like to know what their background is. Yeah. And then I kind of go from there. I usually in my, um, posts, when I look for someone, I say CNA experience beneficial, but not required. Um, that way they kind of know I'm kind of what I'm looking for. I'm very similar to you in that regard, uh, especially because, uh, yeah, cause the program I'm with now, I still use a government program, but, uh, but I, it allows me to hire whoever I want. And so, um, you know, I, Medicaid gives me a certain number of hours each week and I, but I can do all, I do all the hiring. Um, and I put a similar note of like, Hey, if you have caregiving experience, great. But if you don't, that's not an, you know, I'm more looking for people who can communicate well, who can, you know, work with me. And um, I mean, the, the one I have right now is working out great. He had no caregiving experience um, prior to this and he's working out really well. I mean, he's in, uh, he's still in the medical sphere because he's a um, grad student who's working on a physiology degree and is going to go to med school eventually. So I knew like that was a, um, really good quality to have, but also one of the things too, I put in my job ads is like, uh, you know, I, like Michael said, I put all of my needs and, you know, give people up front a notice about what they're going to be doing. But also I try to put a lot of my own personality into it. And that's how, I mean, the caregiver I have now, um, he applied because I said I was a star Wars fan in my ad. So, you know, uh, and put a picture of myself. And so, uh, Deanne, like you were saying of that, personality mesh, I think it is important. I mean, um, not that you can't have caregivers that, I mean, especially if they're only doing, you know, smaller shifts and like, as long as you get along well, they don't have to be your best friend, but some definitely will be. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that agencies told me when I first started this process back in college was that it, to not become friends with your caregivers, which I think is the worst advice ever, because I mean, you're spending time with someone in such an intimate space and not, like I said, you're not going to be best friends with all of them, but I mean, Randy and I are total brothers and I've written about him many times, met plenty of others who we formed a really close bond. And so for me, I think it's kind of inevitable to um, become friends with at least some of yours or especially the ones that stick around the longest. 
Well, and I'm sure with Michael's situation, having a caregiver, you, you know, obviously have become form a friendship. Um, I've had so many caregivers come and go. I do have a bit of a wall um, where you, I, you don't want to become personally nested um, because they might leave next month. Um, so I think because I do want a friendship, but I don't want like I don't want to put myself in a vulnerable where I can get hurt or I don't know if that makes sense at all. But no, I know exactly um, what I mean. I, it's it's almost a matter of like codependency. Like if you become so attached to one person, but um, and you know believing that they might stay around forever it's really hard to accept the reality when they do have to, you know, they do go for a new job or new career, um, whatever it may be. And so, no, I, I totally understand what you're saying there. It's, it's one of the toughest things. And it's do, like, yeah. I keep it in the back of my mind that this is a job for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you can be friends and you can have friendly conversation and have fun doing stuff, but it is a job too. So, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it, and like I said, it's great if you have those lasting relationships because I mean, even like you know, Randy's been gone for a few months with me, but we still keep in touch regularly. I saw him over Christmas, and you know, we have that bond. Um, and I also have it's Dan. Actually, it's funny what you said earlier about um, you know, if it's a red flag if someone is just kind of like sitting there during an interview and looks like you know really zoned out or whatever (laughs) ironically there was one guy i had um around the same time as when randy started who when i their first interview i was like i don't know this guy's like really not giving me much and um seemed just kind of like non-talkative and then he became one of my closest like caregivers he only worked with me for a year before he left for the military but then he actually him and his girlfriend moved back here a few months ago and so it was a really funny instance of I didn't think there was much there in the like um, first impression. And then we became like super close. He was just like more introverted than me. Uh, but, um, but so it's just funny. And there are yeah, situations and like that. You have to yeah. just give it a shot, you know, to yeah. just see mm-hmm. if it works. Exactly. Exactly. And so this leads to the next question. Now this feel free to share as much or as little as you feel comfortable with, but you know, conflicts with caregivers are going to happen. It's inevitable, especially when you're in um, a close space like that. It happens. And there's, you know, that's something that we all deal with. So my question is, how do each of you deal with conflicts when with caregivers when they arise? Um, well, I think you have to understand conflicts going to happen with anybody that you live with. You know, you're not you're not always going to see eye to eye with everything that they want to do versus what you want to do. And uh, there are going to be differences. And I think as long as you don't yell at each other, that you agree to disagree and that you discuss it in a calm, rational voice. Um, you know, there there have been times that that my caregivers have not wanted to do something in particular and and we talked about it and you know I, i'll try to be as accommodating as i can 
But then again, they have to be accommodating to my needs. That's the reason why they live with me. And so, you know, I've never gotten to the point to where I've had to terminate someone based on their inability to do something that I feel like I need. Um, it's come, it's it's come close a couple of times, but we always find a way to work it out. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I have to give in and say, okay, I agree with you. But then again, sometimes they agree with me that, okay, look, maybe we need to be doing this, even though it's not really what they want to do, but they know it's in my best interest. So just know that you're not always going to see eye to eye. You know, there are going to be disagreements, but as long as you remain calm and that you know that, you know, you need to be able to express your feelings without fear of them saying, well, that's a stupid idea, you know? And then again, you have to remember that when they express a concern to you, you need to listen to them and try to take into account what they're going through as well. It's a great point. Yeah. 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 And that would be my advice. That's great. And Deanne, what about you? And you can all, I know Michael brought up too, that like this happens too. I mean, you have to uh, let caregivers go sometimes, especially when you have a lot and you're going through it. So, so kind of a double question for you, Deanne, of like, again, what do you do to manage conflicts? And also when do you know when it's time to cut someone loose? Um, I've, only had one caregiver that left on maybe not so great terms. Um, We just didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. And uh, yeah, it it was time to go. So it was kind of a mutual decision that yes, it was time to go. But uh, a lot of my that I have currently, we have very opposite political views. But share our opinions, but we don't force it on either one of us. Um, so, you know, that's it's kind of good to have that open discussion without being very forceful about it. Um, and we just agree to disagree on a lot of things. And so right now that's working for me. Um, and if there is something that comes up that, you know, isn't working out, then I just bring it up to them and it's either they, you know, make, make an effort to change or we part ways. Um, but I think you have to kind of yourself a little bit um, and understand where they're coming from too. Uh, so if you understand where they're coming from, you can maybe with it a little bit and figure out the best solutions. So I think, I guess that would be yeah. my advice. Hey, I say the philosophy of Ron Burgundy comes into play a lot in our lives of agree to disagree. So, uh, but no, you guys are a really great point. I mean, I, and I would say in my case, like there's only been a, a similar to you. There's only been a couple of times, I think like I've um, left on not so great terms and it's just a matter of like, yeah, you know, when it's like, I don't think I've ever actually like fired anyone, but like, 
um, some la- and some, you know, they had conflicts with like the agency I used to be with. There are a number of factors that come into play. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think I, those, it's really great advice too, is like, you know, when something is going to work out and you can resolve it and when it just isn't, and that's okay. And it doesn't make like you or the other person bad or wrong. It just means like, it's, you're not always going to vibe and that's okay. Um, so, you know, and you know, about finding who will be the right person and eventually who won't, but I think it is a good chance of like Dan, like you said, of like, sometimes giving it a shot is really good as long as they're not, you know, like, I mean, horrible or like, you know, it's going to be a really bad situation. If it's not like, you know, super clicking right away, but you know, you need someone and you, you want to give them a shot. I think that is a good approach, honestly, um, because you never know what might uh, work out eventually. And so though, yeah, those are some too. Um, I think that it's really important to learn Uh, everyone has a different style Mm -hmm. and so if you can tap into what their strong suit is it makes life a lot easier Um, some people are more visual learners so they need someone to show them how to do it some people like to be talked through it Um, so just kind of figure out their their learning style and what how it works I think that helps too as far as uh, getting comfortable with the caregiver. Absolutely. I think that's a great point too of like whether it's your parents or someone you live with or whatever to kind of show the person initially. Um, Like you said, some people, they just catch on really quick. But in other situations, like that's where I like living with my parents. And um, if a new caregiver comes in and they need just a little bit of explanation on how to do something you know my mom or dad can show them how and that is really beneficial um so yeah that's a great point and then um one scenario and this is something i'm curious for both of you too and this is tricky i know especially when you're living independently but if something comes up with a caregiver and they're not available do you have other people in your life who can kind of help you out in these scenarios Michael, we'll start with you because I'm curious in this scenario of like, I know you you have three living caregivers, but still like in situation, we've talked about this, but like in situations, if they're out of town, let's say, or something like that, do you have kind of a backup plan? Yes, I do. Um, uh, Jennifer and her parents usually go on vacation with the other part of their family uh, toward the end of August, first of September. And so they're gone for about a week. So I have another caregiver that I've used in the past and she always comes over and she'll spend time with me and help take care of me while, while they're on vacation. Uh, you know, your, your caregivers need a break. Yeah, they can't stay with you every single day, every single hour. You know, they need a break just like, you know, every, everyone else. You know, everybody gets a vacation if they have a job and that vacation is used for them to enjoy themselves and to be away from work. And so it's good for Jennifer and her parents to be able to get out of the house and get away from me, you know? And so uh, I do have another caregiver and she's, she's been working with me for the past couple of years and she's, she's great. I give her a call maybe a couple of months before they go on vacation and she puts me on her, on her schedule. And so, you know, she doesn't have to stay with me during the day as much, you know, if she has other clients, but she's always here to get me up in the morning, get my lunch, 
and then come back around bedtime and she'll stay with me overnight as well. So, you know, we, we do have a really good situation that seems to be working out, you know, very well. That's great. That's great. And Deanne, what about you too? So, you know, especially if like, as this happens too, unfortunately, if like a caregiver calls out last minute, you know, what do you have kind of a backup plan in those situations? Yeah, I've had to deal with this quite often and it can be a struggle. Um, usually I, I text, I kind of have a text chain with my other PCAs. Uh Um, I put a couple calls out to a couple other of the PCAs to see if they can fill in. And, uh, usually one, one or the other will say, yeah, I can do it. Um, when in doubt, my mom's reliable backup. I try not to rely on her too much, but it happens where all mom. Then if I'm in real dire straits, I could call my sister. Um, she couldn't, but um, I try not to do that. Well, I don't think I have done that. I, I have, um, there has been occasions where if I can get by without someone being here, I I have done that before too, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it's not, you have to. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think especially in the pandemic age, like it's even more of an issue and it's something that um, it's really hard. And I just want, I say this, I bring up this question more just to provide empathy to people out there because I know all of us have probably been in this situation. And so it is really hard. And I just wanted you to know you're not alone. Um, but, and I, and I think for me too, one of the things I do is that, you know, I have a lot of friends, um, in the area who, if they may not do like heavy caregiving stuff, like, um, lifting me bathroom, et cetera. But I kind of have a running joke that if you become close friends with me long enough, you'll probably know how to empty my catheter, um, at a certain point, because like, I have, you know, to give like my parents a break and stuff like that when I'm out with friends, like, um, you know, because I need help with everything from, I mean, my robotic arm gives me a lot of independence, but even then just like getting rides, um, you know, having someone with me during the day. So I have especially like a core group of really close friends who are willing to help me out anytime. And like, um, and, you know, and, and of course that changes too. I mean, we're all in our, I'm 28, you know, a lot of my friends are twenties and thirties. And so you know, jobs and stuff and circumstances change, but nonetheless, like they're all really willing to help me out. And so if I need a ride to an appointment to give my mom a break or something like that, you know, I have those people that are not paid caregivers, but good friends that I can, um, uh, depend on as well. And, and I'll do things in yeah. return too. Like, if, like, am I kind of like usually, um, standard is if someone drives me to an appointment, I buy them lunch or, uh, whatever. So, Having that kind of network is really helpful too. Yeah, I have a great network of neighbors. Um, so if something does come up, I can call a neighbor. Um, one time my back door didn't work, so my dog was stuck outside barking. And the neighbor came, knocked on my door, is everything okay? And I said, oh, good, can you let my dog in the house? You know, so um, it's nice that you can have if you can have a network of friends and neighbors that 
are willing to help out with the little things that yeah everything doesn't get in person all the time the little things make such a difference it's just it's really bad and and even i mean i have um a five-year-old niece and then two younger nephews but my niece is at the age where she can start helping me out with little things like handing me a cup or whatever um when she's back hanging out of my room or whatever so things like that i also you know my cousin uh, when he's in town he drive me around stuff like that so it's good to have that kind of network as well um know, knowing that you don't have to rely entirely on paid caregivers um you can have um you know loved ones friends in your life that um find those people who will support you when you need so um well guys this has been a fantastic session and just wrapping up here you know this uh, i you know i know we've touched on a lot of kind of advice here but what advice or message do you have for others in the sma community who a might be struggling to find caregivers or they may have no idea where to start i think for me you you have to understand that finding a caregiver uh whether it's going to be you know a funded caregiver by the state or if you're going to have to pay for them out of pocket it's not an easy process. Yeah. You, you can't just twitch your nose and find a caregiver. So building up a network of people that you've used in the past that are willing to come back and help you in a time of need um, or talking to the state about maybe, well, what they can do to, to help you find a caregiver. I think the, the one thing that I need to stress is security. If you're bringing someone into your home to take care of you or a loved one with SMA or whatever disease or ailment that they may have, you have to understand that you've got to run background checks and that's, that's got to be normal. And if anybody hesitates on giving you the information, like you're going to need to get their social security number to run a background check and don't just run a statewide check, run a nationwide check. They may, have not, they may have not done anything like I live in Texas. If I just did a state background check, I'm only going to see if they've done anything illegal in the state of Texas. But a, but a nationwide check will check all 50 states. Mm -hmm. And that's what you need to do. And if they're hesitant in giving you the information that you need to run this background check, scratch them off their list and move on. I mean, don't, don't go, well, okay, I like you. And I think... I think I can trust you. No, don't trust anyone. And I, I hate saying that because I'm a very trusting person. But when you're bringing someone into your home, you don't know what they've done in the past. And so that's why I would say, make sure that you run a nationwide background check. You can search on the internet and find companies that'll do it. It normally costs about you know 90 to 100 bucks to do it, but it's money well spent. So... Just know that you're not always going to find the right person the first time. You're probably going to go through numerous caregivers, but don't give up. Stay, you know, stay strong to your convictions and just know that you're doing the right thing. Absolutely. No, and I, I, I was about to say, going back to our comment about like giving people a chance. Absolutely. But also, like Michael said, if they're refusing to give background information, that is a huge red flag. Do not pursue it further. So um, that's great. But Deanne, what about you? Just any advice for people who are just starting out or struggling? I think if you're 
maybe the best thing to do is contact your county. Um, they can kind of tell you what programs you're eligible for and what you're not and kind of do a little bit of guidance on where to go. And then always um, find what works for you, find what's best for you. And, uh, it is a process and it isn't always easy, but you can. Definitely. And I would say to add to that too, I would just say stay connected with the SMA community. Um, if anyone knows what you're going through, it's us. And so, you know, there are myriad ways, you know, Facebook groups and forums. And um, so don't ever hesitate to reach out to people. Uh, you know, our community would love to help you out. There are a number of other SMA groups and um, disability ones as well. So just stay, you know, um, encouraged and like, but also, you know, feel free to vent as well. We're all in this together. And, you know, it is, it's never an easy process. Uh, and there are many loopholes and steps to go through, but it'll be worth it if you just kind of, um, you know, keep looking, you will find the right people eventually. Well, Deanne, Michael, this has been a fantastic conversation. I want to thank you both for coming on today. And, you know, you, uh, listeners out there can find both of you on our YouTube channel and our forums. Uh, and for our listeners out there, you can find more stories like this by subscribing to the SMA News Today podcast. You can also connect with us directly on our forums and follow our main website at smanewstoday.com for the latest SMA news and perspectives. I'm your host, Kevin Schaefer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Take care, everyone. The information in our flash briefings and podcasts are provided for informational and educational purposes only. Be sure to tune in daily to SMA News Today for the latest news and perspectives regarding the disease. Discover more content that might be of interest to you at www.smanewstoday.com. And be sure to follow us on social media and join our SMA News Today forums, a trusted SMA community ready to welcome you anytime.